0: journo at stories that matter studios i'm nance haxton and this is the streets of your town the podcast that takes you on an audio journey through theater of the mind highlighting a different slice of australian life each episode Today on Streets of Your Town podcast, we talk to former Senator Natasha Stott about her appointment to a top United Nations role aimed at ending discrimination against women. This interview is brought to you in conjunction with Griffith University's Gender Equity Research Network as a special co-production to mark the international campaign of 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, which started on the International Day for the Elimination of Violence against women on November 25. Natasha stott Despoja will begin her four-year term in January as one of 23 independent experts monitoring the efforts of countries around the world to improve gender equality. She tells us how the need to protect women's rights is even greater in the wake of coronavirus, and how she keenly feels her responsibility in her new role as the only expert on the committee from the Oceania region. After Natasha's interview, we are joined by Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer, who tells us how incredibly significant it is that Natasha was chosen as the first Australian in 28 years to join the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, otherwise known as CEDAW. But firstly, let's speak to Natasha Stott-Despoyer. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today. It's such a pleasure to chat with
1: you, albeit virtually.
0: (laughs) Firstly, we really should say, Natasha, congratulations on becoming the first Australian in 28 years to join the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. What a thrill. This is great news.
1: I think I'm still in a happy shock, Nance. It was uh, a long time coming because the campaign has been a grueling one over the last sort of eight months or so. So I'm very, very happy and delighted and honoured, and particularly following in the footsteps of the you know distinguished Elizabeth Ebert, who was the last Australian to serve on the committee.
0: Because it was uh, the election was delayed by the pandemic as well, wasn't? So this really has been quite a long process to get here.
1: Indeed. The original date for the treaty body elections in this case was June 29 and it was supposed to be at the General Assembly at the UN in New York. It got postponed at least once, possibly a September date, then postponed again to what was going to be a f- sort of flexible, possible December date. And then suddenly we were told, no, nope, it's on. So um, yes, November 9 US time and it happened. Six elected, which is a great honour considering there were 19 candidates for 11 vacancies and a majority of those vacancies, so-called, were actually already occupied by incumbents. Nine incumbents ran. So. Team Australia did a good job.
0: Absolutely. And this is, I mean, a a wonderful culmination of the work you've done in recent years, Natasha. I mean, the, the book that you wrote on violence, the positions you've held, do you see it that way that this really is such a great recognition of your experience?
1: Well, the campaign was genuinely a Team Australia moment. I know that once you're elected, you serve as an independent expert on a treaty body. So you can hold your country and other countries to account, obviously. But this was something that really involved civil society. It involved the minister, Maurice Payne, who was, you know, uh, really the passionate advocate behind this um, with a lot of urging and wonderful lobbying from civil society over many, many years. So DFAT was involved, Office for Women, Prime Minister and Cabinet Department. I just want to emphasise that because I couldn't have got elected without these extraordinary people working on the ground and to think that it's sort of a culmination of my work over a number of years that's a you know a lovely thought and i do feel that there's a lot of work that i'm going to bring to this role but i'm also conscious too that there are many there were many other deserving Australians with a passion for human rights law who are also deserve this position. So I feel like I'm, I'm sharing it. I'm in it for everyone.
0: <laughs> and you're starting, I mean, they're not mucking around, starting in January, Natasha. Does that mean you'll be going to the UN or what does this look like?
1: Oh, Nance, in the old world, pre-COVID, I would be spending a bit of time in Geneva. So um, it would have been a number of sessions a year for a couple of weeks at a time in in Geneva. Now, I think I've got a lot of Zoom calls in my future, at probably the worst time difference you could imagine. So yes, I don't think uh, a lot of travel as such, but I start officially in January and the first sessions are... Supposed to be in early February, but I'm awaiting confirmation of those dates now.
0: So, what's your focus just as you start in this new position? Are you consumed really with coronavirus and the, the impact that that has had on women's rights around the globe?
1: Well, you would think so. I think that everyone's had to shift focus. I mean, I know the buzzword is pivot, but I would imagine for multilateral institutions and particularly for the you know committee that deals with the issue of discrimination against women and given how this virus has disproportionately affected women and girls, I would think that would have to be the prism through which we view most things. I suspect, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of human rights lawyers out there saying, oh but hang on, you know you've got the work of the committee that is ongoing, so reviewing, for example, different countries who are signatories um, to the convention. Uh, And obviously there's, you know, um, an optional protocol, which allows for different kinds of investigation into particular cases and and countries. But I just think COVID should shift everyone's thinking. And certainly that will be a view that I bring to the committee. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's the same among a lot of the members uh, who are already serving on that committee, including a couple of us new ones.
0: Particularly with your view, I, I think you're the only expert on the committee from the Oceania region. Uh, what, what are some of the main concerns that you have uh, regarding coronavirus, the, the impact of COVID-19? Is it that increased violence that you spoke of recently at the press club?
1: Definitely. I think uh, obviously there's been an impact on discrimination generally. So people, particularly those already dealing with poverty or disability or women and girls generally have been affected disproportionately by this crisis they always are in a crisis but this one in particular because of the nature of work that women were doing be that in the paid economy be it as frontline workers including in healthcare or teachers whether it's to do with the schooling and homeschooling and increased in unpaid caring responsibilities or more adversely the issues of increased levels of violence and we've seen it in australia we've seen it globally and indeed in the region if you're talking around oceana increased rates of violence increased severity of that violence and use of covid 19 its sort of been weaponized in in that sense as well as a tool of violence if you like so these issues are certainly regional issues but i think there are going to be you know, medium, long-term issues with which we have to grapple. And some of those are compounded by the fact that in our region, we've already got some of the highest rates of violence in the world against women and girls and some of the lowest levels of representation, particularly in parliaments. Uh, And so that... Those are issues that already exacerbate some of the existing inequalities as well.
0: I mean, those two issues, just that you've summed up there, Natasha, I'm not sure how many people would be aware of that. Some of the highest rates of domestic violence in the world, in our region, that's shocking,
1: isn't it? Look, it is shocking. You've got to remember the issue of violence, uh, gendered violence, is actually considered by the World Health Organization to be an epidemic. So across the globe, you've got roughly a third of women on average who've experienced some form of violence or coercion, uh, abuse, sexual violence, etc. In Australia, we know the statistics here, particularly in relation to domestic violence. We know police attend a domestic violence incident every two minutes on average, so around 657 times a day. That's pre-COVID. We know every week in Australia, on average, a woman dies violently, and that's usually at the hands of someone she knows. Now, in our region, the Pacific, particularly the South Pacific, there are really concerning alarming rates of violence. You know, I've been to places like Papua New Guinea where you've got in some regions, only some, rates as high as 90% of women have experienced some form of violence. You go to Vanuatu or Fiji, where you're talking about two thirds of women experiencing some form of violence. So in that respect, those figures are well known. And obviously there are other parts of the world, including the African continent where there are some places with alarming high rates, but it's all high it's all too high it should be zero obviously you want a violence-free world as well as a violence-free australia and region and i can hear your dog in the background same natasha
0: now. obviously <laughs> agreeing with your sentiments there uh on uh, this epidemic I mean, she's having a nightmare so yes, maybe one in the same i know when i've spoken to you about this natasha you've spoken with op- some optimism despite the years of experience that you've had in this area but that really if we can get towards gender parity that that is the underlying cause do you think that that uh, is still an uh, a central aim of how to eliminate this violence well, against women of course
1: women? achieving equality and gender equality should be an aim regardless but you're right even though there's no single cause that results in violence against women and children we know that there is a link between gender inequality and disrespect and violence. We know that, you know, there are a number of traits or underlying causes that give rise to this violence in the first place. They include, you know, rigid gender stereotypes, disrespect of women, limiting of women's uh, independence and attitudes that condone disrespect or trivialize violence against women. So if you start to tackle some of those areas, that means you're actually dealing with all the settings in which we live, love, learn, work and play. So workplace, education and schools, homes obviously, sporting fields and your profession of the media. Once we start to address some of the behaviors and attitudes, then we actually can see, I hope, uh, an environment and a country in which violence is eliminated, at least on the basis of gender. But obviously a violence-free future for everyone is my aim. And yeah, I try to be optimistic, Nads, because I know that it's possible. I know that we're not biologically wired to consider it appropriate that women and children in particular should be subject to this kind of domestic violence, family violence or sexual assault. So let's work out ways that we can create more healthy, respectful, ethical relationships. That's possible. We have the tools to do this. We know we do.
0: You are such a pioneer in this area, Natasha, of course, is in your role in the Senate. And you mentioned that lack of representation. Is that something that you think also could be a really important part in this elimination of violence against women, actually making sure that there is better gender parity in the parliament better gender representation
1: absolutely I mean obviously when you talk about my role in this I build on decades and decades of work by those advocates of gender equality and feminists and women in particular so it's been a big part of my life to be a gender equality advocate and to obviously fight discrimination against anyone but clearly my focus is the area of eliminating violence. When you talk about Parliament, absolutely, not only is greater representation of women in all our diversity and difference, not only is that the right thing to do and the fair thing to do, but it actually makes a difference, right down to issues as simple as profit and loss. We know that more women in parliaments in particular does lead to decisions that ultimately better reflect the views of the population and of families and there is an inextricable link between women in positions of power and parliament in particular and issues to redress or address violence against women and children so it's absolutely appropriate but i'm passionate about it as i always have been but even more so when you know that laws will change, lives will be potentially changed or saved as a consequence of more women in parliaments. And that's just what the evidence tells us.
0: And also for yourself, Natasha. I, I imagine. I hope you might be looking forward to not being referred to as uh, in terms of your your blonde attributes, which seems to be a common theme in Australia that you've spoken of uh, yeah. in a number of your speeches.
1: Look, a long time ago, and you know you've been around a while too, now So you've seen some of the stereotypic, uh, ridiculous stereotypes to which I was subjected over a number of years, and. I think we're moving past a period where uh, you know, someone's hair colour, uh, outfits, marital, parental status uh, or even their age Uh, is referred to uh, every time they they get a run. And, you know, we're allowed to be multifaceted, of course. We're allowed to, you know, describe each other in terms of, you know, that's a, you know, white top you're wearing today or orange, as the case may be, to demonstrate that you eliminate violence against women and children. You know, we can see each other on the screen, so you know I'm wearing a white top. But uh, I think... We can celebrate some of these things but not be defined by them. And certainly the double standards that have existed and continue to do so in some ways for women in positions of power and in parliament and public life in particular, that is just... It's exhausting, it's debilitating and hopefully it's changing. But yes, a lot of blonde headlines over many, many years.
0: Hopefully that that is changing as you take it on more onto the world stage as well, Natasha. And you mentioned COVID-19 before. What do you think are some of the the main things that should be prioritised really in the next few years about reversing uh, some of the issues that, that you mentioned
1: well, I guess an immediate impact of the virus was indeed the issue of violence, and so, conversely, um, perversely, almost, you know, the measures that we have been undertaking to protect people from the spread of the virus have had unintended consequences. For example, locking people in their homes, or you know, in a lockdown circumstance obviously has had an impact um, on the rates of violence. We know this means sometimes victims are trapped in their homes with their abusers. We know there are fewer opportunities to access help. So some of the immediate measures to deal with that were incredibly important and continue to be incredibly important. I think that there are a range of matters that will come out. Obviously, short-term issues like health or employment and income issues are absolutely fundamentally important. I guess there was this other side where some of us thought some of the changes that were introduced, including that period of universal, you know, available childcare, free childcare, you know, how long have some of us been arguing for this as an investment in the economy, not just the lives of women and men who happen to be parents. But I thought that would be a moment, you know, that we might sustain. I thought governments would realise the importance of some of these. You know, Why was it important in a pandemic, but not considered important going forward? So I think I'd love us to reimagine our future, our economy, our society in light of this virus and use some of the lessons that we've learned. Look at some of the programs that made the biggest single difference to people's lives, their work opportunities, their ability to study, their ability uh, to contribute to the economy. And in fact, we're good for the economy. And you know, universal access to, to childcare and early education, fundamental. I think there are other policies that we should be considering too. And that is embedding gender equality throughout our workplaces and throughout our society. And I'm not sure that recent budgets have done that. And I'm not sure that our legislators are really grappling with the fact that women really suffered, people suffered, Men and women, men in a different way from women, but women have really suffered the downturn in particular jobs that happen to be feminized industries or, you know, female dominated. You know, the fact that women who do make up that workforce that we've suddenly discovered is really important. Cleaners, you know, supermarket workers, which, you know, men as well, I get that. But there are a lot of industries that have domination or, you know, dominance in them, including Education, all of these sectors that we haven't always prioritised. And as for healthcare workers, you know, they've been on the front line of this virus in every sense, both in terms of getting it and protecting us. So, wouldn't we start to think, oh, maybe we should value some of those careers, those industries, those individuals more? So, that's what I'm hoping we might start to reimagine a little better. But of course, embedding policies that address violence, disrespect, inequality, discrimination that is a given that's exactly what i'd love to see happening asap
0: is it daunting to be looking at this
1: on a, on a world level
0: or are you excited to be contributing to to this uh, global epidemic of violence against women to to see how that can be prevented
1: uh i am daunted and i think we have a mutual friend in uh, sue harris Rimmer, and when she warns you about the workload involved You know it must be pretty steep because uh, she's got an IQ over the moon. I think that the reality of the research, the paperwork, treaty body and conventions work, I think that is overwhelming at this stage. But there's an excitement too that is undeniable. I love being a global citizen. I have always wanted to work in that multilateral framework because I know You know, arguably, it's one of the best things we've got. And I know it's got flaws and I know there's capacity and resource issues. But that's where you think if a lot of individuals come together, whether it's in a committee or more broadly, we can in some small way hopefully make a difference. And I'm very wedded to the idea of collaboration. I'm wedded to the idea that we can use uh, the convention as something aspirational for member states and for countries. And I think that, I hope I'll be able to play a role in that. But yeah, I don't underestimate the workload, but the opportunity to see what's happening in different countries around the world, to learn from each other and maybe bring some of the good work that Australia's done. Because we have done some world-leading work on primary prevention of violence against women. So if we can bring that to the table, I think that's exciting.
0: Just wondering what if there's anything that researchers can do to support the work of advocates such as yourself especially in this new united nations
1: position well be careful what you wish for researchers because um i'm i will need help i'm not pretending for a moment that my experience is enough to cover the breadth of topics and the range of treaty body work and conventional law but i do think the civil society component of the UN, of multilateralism, of the treaty bodies, is critical. And I think governments are learning that. I think our government learned that too because it's been a long time between drinks, you know, 28 years since we've had someone serving on CEDAW or even Australia running for CEDAW. And I think that's been disappointing, but I also understand that there, it's not... A reflection, And it shouldn't be considered a reflection on the work that our country's done over successive governments because we actually had a lot to boast about in years gone by and currently. So I think there's an opportunity for people to provide support and ideas and maybe fresh perspectives. But certainly civil society is a a critical part of that. But certainly once I start getting my homework, I'll be in touch. Don't you worry. (laughs) Um, And I think recognising too that, and this is something I learned in the Senate, obviously being a minor party senator back then, that collaboration is essential. I'm going to be working on a committee that has the breadth of views you can only begin to imagine. You only have to look at some of the countries that ran in this contest with me, from Netherlands through to China. You know, I'm serving with so many different countries from so many member states representatives from different countries and continents. So we've got to take that into account. It's not going to be easy to pursue a single-minded agenda without a degree of debate, discussion, even compromise. But you know me. I won't compromise on the basic principles and I'll never compromise on human rights. But I do know to get outcomes, we're going to have to work together, and that includes civil society, governments, as well as CEDAW committee members. But maybe I'm sounding a little Pollyanna-ish. Wait till (laughs) I've... uh, Gone to a few meetings first, hey? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we'll hope to hear from you then. They have asked if there is uh, one research area that you'd like to hear more about and have actually offered. We can do a gender card podcast on that topic if, uh,
1: if you could think of anything in particular. I would have said trafficking and sex trafficking issues at the moment. But having said that, you would have seen CEDAW has brought down some recommendations in the last month on these particular issues. Obviously, I'm always wedded to and fascinated by the work that's being done on not only primary prevention of violence, but some of the broader intervention um, and other um, aspects in relation to, to violence against women. Women's agency, of course, is something that fascinates me and I guess I'm biased, but I do think there is increasing opportunities to look at the links between women's access to power and, and opportunities and agency and how that shapes countries. I think that in light of COVID, obviously the issues of women's economic empowerment absolutely writ large, absolutely important to me. And I suspect I suspect that will be a focus. But there are so many other areas of um, law. There are so many other aspects in relation to human rights uh, that I think, you know, will be worthy of exploring. So I'm happy to come back to you with, you know, uh, my number one. Um, but at the moment, there's a broad range.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Gender Card today, Natasha. Really appreciate you giving us some of your time. And just to conclude, I wonder if we can just ask you a uh, I mean, as we've discussed, the statistics are pretty damning for this area of violence against women. You've described it as a crisis in Australia before. What gives you hope?
1: Well, the good news is that violence is preventable. You know, as I say, it's not an inevitable part of the human condition. So we can change lives, we can literally save lives, but it will take time. And I've been involved in legislative reform. And I know that policy making takes time, but there's nothing that takes so much time as cultural change. And that's the area we're in. So we've done a lot of good work legislatively. Obviously we need, you know, resources for, you know, whether it's uh, primary prevention right through to various stages of intervention and, and, and tertiary. But the biggest issue is changing behaviors and attitudes that can compound or give rise to violence in the first place. So what gives me hope? The fact that so many people, more than ever, want change. People are open to debating these issues, but even more so, I think for the first time in a long time, people are saying, oh, I can actually make a difference myself. So if there's one thing you do today, and it only has to be one thing a day, whether it's question how you interact with women, Or look at how women are depicted in the media. Challenge that. Think about that. Or maybe it's being a good bystander and intervening when someone makes a sexist joke or going to your office tomorrow and checking out how have you embedded gender equality in your workplace. So there are so many things we can do, even if it's just when the kids get home tonight. I just remember we don't You know conrad doesn't get the bins in and cordy doesn't set the table and that may seem a trite example but the messages we send boys and girls and forgive my you know binary description here but the messages we send babies and children from the moment they're born does affect the story as to how women and men treat each other in years to come
0: so much as this is a global issue the power does really come back to us doesn't it for this cultural shift as you were saying it's it's the little decisions that that we make that contribute to this
1: absolutely so individuals can make a difference and as i said earlier you know i talked in terms of women and men then but these rigid gender stereotypes have served none of us particularly well so let's think in terms of respectful healthy equal relationships, whether that's in our parliaments, our workplaces, indeed in our media and universities, also in our homes. We know that parents or guardians and caregivers are still the single biggest influence in children's lives. So think about that when you say something that might have, you know, really gendered, negative gendered,
0: Thank you so much, Natasha. I think I'll be getting my son to set the table tonight. Really appreciate your time on the gender card.
1: Absolute pleasure to talk to you, Nance, as always.
0: That was our Watch Chair and newly elected United Nations CEDAW Representative, Natasha Stott-Despoyer. And now on Streets of Your Town podcast, we are joined by Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer, the Director of the Policy Innovation Hub in the Business School at Griffith University. Professor Sue Harris-Rimmer, thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to be here, (laughs) Nance. So today, of course, we are speaking about Natasha stott Now, this is someone who's really been in the stratosphere around Australia for quite a while in various positions, but now going to the United Nations.
2: How significant is this appointment? It's extremely significant because she actually is elected as an independent expert, so she's not representing Australia. She is completely independent, and her expertise will inform a series of binding processes. So that that committee, the CEDAW committee, they give feedback on state reports. So every four years, countries report on the status of women in their country and how they're complying with the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Experts like Natasha will be able to ask questions and interrogate what states say about their performance and give feedback. So that's always a really amazing set of accountabilities under international law and one of the few we have and the second thing the CEDAW committee does is issue these general comments so she'll be able to when Elizabeth evett was our expert there she wrote general comment 19 which is the way that we now think about violence against women under international law so you have a real chance to develop the direction of international law by serving on that committee. And also the optional protocol to CEDAW means that women in any country in the world that have signed CEDAW can make complaints to that committee and the committee can basically judge the, the veracity and, and uphold those complaints. So it's a really it's a really important position. This is a big deal it's in Australian terms, deal. in world terms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm really... Even though it's an independent expert, so, so Natasha was judged by other countries on her merits as an individual but to have the backing of your state is very important and the Australian government did a really good mm. job in supporting her nomination uh, and having a, a transparent process to nominate her to choose her in the first place so it's the first time we've ever had a mm. selection process that's a really good process it's about time we had something like that and they decided to put someone forward in the first place we haven't had anyone since Elizabeth Everett we've had Philip Austin, who was on the Human Rights Committee generally speaking Australia has not supported enough people in the UN system so I'm hoping this is the sea change and we're going to see more nominations for these important expert positions we've had Hilary Charlesworth in the international court as an ad hoc judge we have Rosemary Kaez who's on the convention she's an expert on the disabilities convention we have Megan Davis who's been on the permanent forum for indigenous peoples and
0: that's it you mentioned Elizabeth Evett. I mean, how long is it between wickets, essentially, for Australia? It's
2: been a while before, since we've had a representative oh, on this it's, committee. it's been years. F- <laughs> yeah, so um, I was... It's the coolest gig I've ever had. I got to write the blurb about Elizabeth Evett when Australia Post released her on a stamp. It's never been... That's a, pretty cool. It's cool, because <laughs> it was also all these other cool women. That, it was the feminist uh, legends stamps. Yay. And seriously, she was a completely amazing person. And... Went from being on that committee to becoming the chair of that committee and then being appointed again to the Human Rights Committee for the ICCPR. So she had, she parlayed this, her appointment into a longer stretch. We're hoping the same will happen for Natasha. And she certainly has the runs on the board. Can we talk a bit about
0: the achievements of Natasha Sotdespoir? Certainly in the last few years, she's really made a niche for particularly her expertise in this area
2: i think that's right so we expect natasha to break down walls and be the first in lots of different areas at this point but she's still very young so she's still got heaps of history to make right clearly a lot of people know as the leader of the democrats they know her as a politician the youngest politician in the senate the, the youngest leader of a party but since her retirement she's done a lot of very serious work on domestic violence so with the foundation our watch um which is i think a national entity but has it's um, has its headquarters in victoria and for for me what was extremely important she was the ambassador for women and girls appointed by julie bishop who followed from penny williams and then was succeeded by Sharma stone that was a very new post ambassador for women and girls and I think she elevated the, the, the post in terms of people in the Australian community understanding that DFAT was representing their values overseas, Australia was representing their, their concern about gender equality as a diplomatic issue. All those women have done a great job and now it's Julianne Guevara who's our first Indigenous ambassador, female Indigenous ambassador and also our new ambassador for gender equality so it's had a name change which I very much support. So that, that role has evolved, but Natasha did a really seriously good job in that in that role, and I think that set her up well for this kind of more diplomatic position. As these international experts, it's an expertise job, as I said, but they do have to navigate multilateral diplomacy, so that's very important.
0: And particularly, she's the only representative from Oceania. Is that significant as well, to be able to perhaps put forward some much as she is representing broader than that, there are such significant problems throughout that region, aren't there?
2: Yeah, that's right. It's, it's weird. In the UN system, we don't represent Oceania. We're part of the Western Europe and other group, WEOG. So actually she was elected from a group of people that represent Western Europe and other groups. That's why it's so competitive. That's why her, she won in a very competitive field. You know, we're all hoping she will carry the Pacific and New Zealand and you know our part of the world, especially around issues of gender and climate change, especially around disaster relief, especially around the Women, Peace and Security agenda. So she has, I think the capacity, especially because of her role as ambassador for, for women and girls. She has a deep knowledge of our region. She's met a lot of the community. She made a point about meeting as many women's organisations as she possibly could while she was in that role. So she's very connected. And the other person we have, don't forget, is Elizabeth Broderick, who is on the UN Working Group for Discrimination Against Women and Girls in Law and in Practice. So we also have Liz Broderick hanging out in Geneva doing that work and I'm hoping as independent experts they can help each other as well to bring the voice of our region into that UN space.
0: Sounds like this is really something to be celebrated for Australia. What an, what an achievement, really. It is
2: a little bright spot in a terrible year. I was so very, very proud and delighted because I know Natasha works so hard. She puts her heart and soul into every job she has. And I just feel like she has this... She's been a law maker she's got a perspective she's always interested in young women you know i think she's going to bring something to that group i think she's got a very strategic view of women's of gender equality and i also think she's you know she's always catalytic in all her roles right she's a catalytic sort of human (laughs) and we need that it's never been if you're looking at what's happening since covid You're seeing she sessions, you're seeing women drop out of universities, women drop out of the workplace, you know, a whole lot of progress that's been unraveled. So we need those experts to be holding the line and to be putting pressure on states to increase their gender equality indicators. And I think she can do that, you know, in a diplomatic and constructive way she is always a force to be reckoned with
0: I think I can see why Maurice Payne crossed whatever party lines were left I suppose between them but to 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 really put her forward as as the best representative from Australia and push her as far as she could
2: yeah I think that's right and Julie Bishop before that I think she does transcend some of these lines because of her particular blend of expertise but she's also a really good communicator we need we need that in the UN system I would think that before Natasha was won that position probably no one had heard of the CEDAW committee or knew what they did, right? So this is where a little bit of that ability to communicate what the UN does and the role it plays is really important and I must say us um, us uh, international lawyers have never been that great at that job, you know, explaining what they do. Uh, but it's really important. Women women in Australia have the ability to make a complaint to that committee. CEDAW is written, not perfectly, but in some ways, into our domestic law. It's part of the Sex Discrimination Act, not completely, but there it underpins a lot of the kind of the discrimination law in Australia. So CEDAW is relevant to Australian women's lives. They probably just don't know how much they have to thank for for that passage. And there were a lot of a lot of women. Jessie Street was integral in creating the Convention through her integral work in setting up the Commission on the Status of Women. You know, we have a really proud legacy in that piece of, of, of that international treaty and we have some of the best experts in the world on that treaty like Hillary Charlesworth so it's it's really exciting it's really exciting
0: it's such an enormous area though if i do bring it back to that is it a bit daunting to a degree what really what do you hope can be achieved not just by natasha but really by that committee in this four years
2: yeah they have the they have the ability with the general comments to set the tone So they can explore new areas, so they can explore gender and climate change, they can explore the future of work and gender equality, they can sort of set out a future agenda for where the law should go, but at the same time they're keeping these states accountable to what they say they would do and how they would comply with the treaty. And whether in fact they have in practice. One of the cool things about the committee is they get shadow reports, right? They're called shadow reports from civil society organisations. So not only do you get what the government says, they did, then you get the shadow report where civil society say, well, this is what it looked like oh, actually. It's pretty balanced in it's, that sense. It's, it's quite balanced. Mm. And I think that's really important. I think some, that's something Natasha will bring to that ability to really listen to and take on board what the civil society actors are saying and weigh it against what the states are saying and come up with something that's quite defensible in the middle right they are super important and it is daunting but i also think the chance to make that convention a real you know something that lives in women's lives and something that they're proud of this was the anniversary year for a whole lot of things for the beijing conference for women was also 20 years since we got the women peace and security declaration the resolution in the security council so there are foundations now that women civil society groups can use. There is language they can use. There is obligations and accountabilities their states have said that they will follow. That those activists can use. You've seen it. Saudi Arabia has been absolutely copying it. They've been hammered absolutely, Mm. because they say it, but they don't do it, right? So, there is a level of authenticity that comes into, you know, do states really value the lives of their female citizens? Will they prove it? What does it look like? And what does the future of that look like? So it's daunting, but it's incredibly worthwhile. I know she'll take every chance and she'll do it as a team. I mean, the beautiful things about those committees are they do work as teams.
0: And I think what a significant time too for Australia. Yes, it is an international committee, but the debate here on domestic violence and on legislative changes talking about coercive control and the need for that to be recognised, that that seems to be an incredibly important time locally for that as well.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, there's still a lot of states where domestic violence isn't a criminal offence and is not illegal and is still culturally heavily sanctioned. There's still a lack of law in many countries in the world that protect women's rights. But even where there is law, it's not perfect, and we know that to be true. So I think building on her national experience in the kind of policy dilemmas that Australia has and the lack of implementation of the laws we do have that's going to really help her understand some of these international debates.
0: Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else that you'd like
2: to say about Natasha Sot-Despoia's appointment to CEDAW? I'm just so thrilled. And she's not there alone. There's a whole range of you know civil society people and experts that are going to support her any way we can. It's a, it's a big job, but she's we, you've got this, Natasha, and we've got you. Thanks to Professor
0: Susan Harris-Rimmer and Natasha Stott-Despoyer for joining us on this episode of Streets of Your Town. The 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence campaign ends on International Human Rights Day on December 10, highlighting that violence against women is a fundamental violation of human rights. You can take part by tweeting hashtag 16days, supporting a women's group or marching in your city.